Something in the plans of men. Esther chapter 2. This is the second sermon from Esther 2. Esther chapter 2, and I want to read verses 1 through 18. Hear the word of God. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Hegai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Hegai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day, Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each young woman's turn came to go in to King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months' preparation according to the regulations for the women, for thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with perfumes, and preparations for beautifying women. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called her for her by name. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Hegai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is in the seventh, excuse me, which is in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. Amen. Father God, we come to this, your word, uh, with expectation. We tremble before it. It is, Father, 
uh, our life, as you said in Deuteronomy, and we desire that our hearts would be transformed, that, Father, we would pattern our lives after it, and that as we look at your providence, Father, it would quicken within us a renewed faith and trust that you do all things well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> One of the neat literary features of this book, and there's a lot of really neat uh, literary features to it, is uh, the number of times that this book uh, takes phrases directly out of the Joseph story and uh, puts them into this story, and they're word for word in the, in the Hebrew. And I mentioned this last time, but I thought I would start today with the... Uh, story of, of uh, uh, Joseph, Moses, in his own way, showed that uh, God was working out all of the details of uh, Joseph's life, even though Joseph many times must have wondered, what in the world is going on? Must have wondered, where are you, Lord? Don't you care about me? And yet, as we read through the story of Joseph in Genesis, we recognize God was present in absolutely every detail of that story. Uh, the sinful favoritism of Jacob uh, toward Joseph, the lack of pastures in Shechem, so that the brothers had to go to different pastures uh, right at the time that the Midianites would be coming through, the timing of the Midianites, and uh, uh, Potiphar needing a servant right when he did, and the manipulations of Potiphar's wife, and many other details. Everything had to be in place right at the right time, or none of the story would have been able to happen. Um, it really is a, a fantastic story of God's providence uh, there as well. I often wondered uh, what in the world people who dug that well must have thought, you know, especially if they were Christians. Lord, aren't you prospering the work of our hands? I've dug wells out in Ethiopia. And uh, when you get down far enough and the light that's above you is about the size of your thumbnail, you know, you wonder if you ought to be going lower. It's a lot of hard work. And I often wondered if these people thought this is utterly wasted work. And yet, in God's providence, it was not wasted, maybe wasted to them. But if they had not wasted their labor, Joseph's life would have been wasted. Remember that uh, Reuben, they wanted to kill Joseph, and Reuben says, oh, let's put him in this well. He wanted to buy some time to be able to rescue him. And uh, so he's in the well just enough hours to allow the Midianite caravan to come by to send Joseph down into Egypt. And, of course, Reuben just happens to be missing when the brothers sell him. Otherwise, he would have very strenuously objected to this sale. There's so many details of that that could not have happened. And God says that he had determined beforehand to send Joseph ahead in order to uh, save the lives of many. Well... Mordecai, the inspired prophet of this book, in a number of ways, helps us to enter into the illusion of God's silence, okay, the illusion of God's absence. For example, uh, he hints at this, I've already mentioned, by borrowing a lot of phrases from the Joseph story and uh, by this reminding us, hey, God was in control in the Joseph story. He's in control here too. Do you know why it is that Mordecai... And by the way, you can pronounce it either way, Mordecai or Mordecai. Mordecai is the Hebrew way, and, uh, but in the pronunciation dictionaries, you'll see it pronounced either way. But uh, Mordecai mentions the name of the king 192 times, 
and uh, his name Ahasuerus is given 29 times, but God's name does not appear one time as a word, nor does any title of God appear even one time as a word. you know why he did that? I believe that he did that because God seems to be so hidden in this providence, and yet God is everywhere in that, and this is the paradox. In this book, God doesn't work by way of miracles. He works by way of providence. Okay, And miracles is God's fantastic power that is present in the extraordinary. Providence is God's fantastic power that is present, present in the ordinary. And it really is fantastic when you realize that Scripture says that there is not a detail of life that is outside of God's control. Not a detail. And this book helps us to take... Uh, comfort in and to have trust in God's total providence overall. In fact, God's providence really in many ways is, is more important than the miraculous uh, because it covers absolutely everything in life. Okay? God's providence is something that uh, once you see God in providence, you see him everywhere. Now, we ought to be looking uh, for miracles. The scripture talks about that, but never downplay the ordinary in the providence of God. And so God is hidden in this book, and yet he's powerfully present. And there's a number of ways in which the author shows that. Uh, one, uh, not only does he quote from the Joseph story, but there's phrases taken straight out of the Daniel story and the Exodus stories as well. But there's another uh, literary feature that, uh, that is used here, and it wa is one that I used to be very skeptical of. And... Um, there is another author, if you want the paper, I'm not going to go through all the details, but he finally convinced me that the acrostics that have been mentioned by various authors in the book of Esther uh, really are not accidental acrostics. There are so many features of them that are placed strategically and at just the right point that to me it, it seems like it, it is not, a, it could not be a, a, a coincidence. And... Uh, there are four acrostics altogether that spell the name of God in this book. Uh, two are mentioned, by, are put on the lips of pagans, two on the lips of Jews. There's two men, there's two women. Amukin um, gives the first acrostic, then Esther, then Haman, and then the writer of the book. And there are 16 features about these acrostics that uh, just show it's not accidental. Now, interestingly, in two ancient Hebrew manuscripts, you will find... Actually, it's three, uh, three of the ancient Hebrew manuscripts. You will find that the, uh, the acrostics are highlighted. And if you look at the rules that were given to the ancient Masoretes, um, uh, uh, in those rules, they talk about these things. So they must have done it rather, uh, rather regularly. Now, Hebrew is read from, from uh, right to left. And so the first letter on this particular phrase, uh, that's the yah sound. That's the huh sound, and there is the wuh, and the, another huh sound. So, Yahweh, okay? Jehovah is the way uh, many people transliterate that. And that's exactly the way it appears in these, uh, in these Hebrew manuscripts with those first letters uh, written uh, in, in, in highlighted form. And so it shows God hidden and yet so powerfully present that not even pagans can speak apart from his presence. 
You know, Scripture says we live and move and have our being in God. We cannot so much as breathe apart from God giving us uh, our breath. And so here people are speaking against God and God is saying, no, I'm even present in the opposition that men bring against me. Now, there's another way, and you can take that one off if you want or you can leave it on there for a while. But another way in which God shows this theme of providence is in the word Purim, which occurs ten times in the book. Now, the word Pur or Purim is a, uh, a, a word that um, means dice, okay? Uh, or it's translated as lot sometimes. But it was a symbol of chance or of luck in the ancient world. And it was used later on in this book by Haman, and that's why the Feast of Purim is called Purim, it was used later on by Haman to determine which is going to be the lucky day in which we kill all of these Jews. And so he starts casting this uh, uh, Purim, the, the dice, and the first day doesn't work, and the second day, and the third day. He has to go practically through the entire calendar before he finds a day that's so-called lucky. And I think any Jews who are reading this would recognize, wow, God is awesome. You know, he's forestalling all of these other days so that the day in which they're going to try to slaughter the Jews is perfectly providentially timed to coincide with what God says it must. And it, it, it really is a, a fantastic uh, thought. Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap. The lot is the dice. It's cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. He's saying there is no such thing as chance. In fact, he names his feast the Feast of Purim, because the dice is not, in God's eyes, the sign of chance, but that God controls even the tiniest details of life, people gambling at the casino. There can't be anything in life that is outside of God's control, because if he doesn't control everything, he can't control anything. All of life is so interrelated. Now, with that as a background, I want to start mining this gold field of uh, chapter 2 of Esther and uh, see what we can get out of it. Chapter 2 deals with the plans of man and the plans of God, which will stand. And, of course, any reader of the Bible knows which plans are going to stand. Proverbs 19.21 says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Amen? <laughs> God is in charge. Uh, in fact, in chapter 1, we already saw that. Darius is not God. God is God, and I am not. And uh, we took comfort from that. But... Uh, in verse 1 and following, we're looking at the seamy side of life. Surely God cannot be present in that, can he? Uh, this is something that makes uh, some Christians really squeamish, you know, when, oh boy, can we really talk about God's overruling and his uh, providence governing even the sins of other people? And we've already given hints of that. The greatest sin to be perpetrated was the cross, and yet every detail, the timing of it, everything, uh, God uh, still controlled without being the author of sin, tempting anyone to sin, or sinning himself. And we're going to try to unravel this. Now, anyway, right off the bat, we uh, come in verse 1 to uh, be confronted once again with the lust of this king. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Now, there's a hint here that he was sorry for what he had done. He was sorry for getting drunk, sorry for his anger, uh, sorry for listening to those advisors and getting rid of his wife. He misses Vashti in some way, and uh, he was sorry about that. Now, um, chapter 1 doesn't say exactly what happened to her. Uh, she could have been killed. She could have been divorced. 
I don't think she was just demoted because the text of chapter 1 indicates that she would never come to him again. And uh, so to me, it's one of, the, uh, one of those two. And it's very interesting in uh, Brosius's studies of the, uh, the tablets that were dug up at Persepolis, they came to the conclusion based on the evidence there that the first queen had to have died well before 15, uh, 515 B.C. Well, what year does she become queen? You know, if the king is Darius, then it would be 515 B.C. So that's a little tidbit of information I should have included in the first two papers that I did not. But uh, the assumption is, uh, on my part, that she died or at least was divorced. But this text says, eventually his wrath subsided and he remem remembered her. And several scholars point out that the remembering is an amorous remembering. It's kind of an erotic remembering. And on the phrase, what she had done, Nadich says, uh, the king remembered what Vashti used to do, erotic overtones. Uh, both of those phrases seem to imply he misses her companionship and especially her eroticism. As is what the text seems to be implying. One commentator said, Ahasuerus misses not the person, but a function. And so I have labeled this as lust aroused. Uh, King Ahasuerus, he had a harem full of women, and he is not satisfied. You know, he's wishing for something else. And I think that is so typical of lust. It's always seeking, and it is never able to be satisfied. And um, he must have mentioned something out loud because these servants immediately say something to try to please him. They know their king and uh, they immediately suggest uh, something for this problem. What's their solution? Well, it's more of the same. He's not satisfied with what he has. What's their solution? More of the same. And I think that's exactly the remedy that many people in this world give. There are men and women in the world today who are constantly looking, constantly searching for new things to satisfy their lust. Now, they don't have the carnal resources that King Darius had. Uh, he had enormous resources at um, uh, his disposal. But their lusts are aroused and they are never satisfied. Now, we might say, well, there is no such thing as polygamy in America today. Uh, but uh, polygamy proper is outlawed. But there's serial polygamy in America and there's plenty of it. You see, when you get divorced and you get remarried, if it's not a legitimate divorce, God says, you got two wives or two husbands, if, if it's the other way around, uh, we call that serial polygamy. Uh, with some people, it could be um, uh, adultery, or it could be numerous one-night stands that simply do not satisfy them. With some people, it could be uh, uh, thoughts and images. In the text here, it says that he kept uh, remembering, he remembered Vashti. And uh, there are some people who lose their delight in their husband or lose their delight in their wives because they're always imagining something different about that they don't have or somebody different. And uh, that is a disastrous mistake to make because it leads to dissatisfaction and envy and it is the breeding ground for all sorts of lust. The mind is an enemy or it is a friend depending upon how it is used. Now, this passage only describes lust aroused. Later, they're going to satisfy it. I want to at least mention that there is an answer to that, okay? And uh, the Scripture uh, gives ways in which we can completely cleanse our mind uh, of that. For women, frequently it is relational pornography, like soap operas and romance novels, where they are um, having a voyeurism of feelings and relationships that arouse expectations that the husband cannot meet. 
With men, it is frequently a voyeurism of acts. And again, setting up expectations in the spouse that uh, cannot be met. But both need to be completely eliminated from our minds. And there are many different biblical disciplines that the Lord gives to enable us to do that. In fact, we have resources. The poorest of us have resources that King Darius wouldn't have dreamed of having to satisfy his needs that can enable us in no matter what circumstance we are to be content. Amen? Scripture says we have the resources uh, before us. And one of the most important biblical disciplines is meditation. Now, meditation is more than just memorization. Let me give you uh, what some of the uh, key elements of meditation are. Meditation involves memorization of uh, the scriptures. Secondly, it involves thoughtful contemplation and understanding of all of the ins and outs of that, of that um, a particular verse that we're memorizing. And then thirdly, appropriating God's thoughts as being our thoughts, taking them and saying, I want to think God's thoughts after him. Fourth, the ability to use that scripture as a sword, as a weapon, or as a healing bomb. Fifth, continual review over a period of days and weeks, that's practice. And then sixth, application in your situation. All of that is involved in meditation. And in the past, I've used the illustration of a cow chewing its cud. Uh, the Puritans actually came up with that. The cow, when it first eats grass, is like memorizing the scripture. It's storing the grass in its first stomach, and it's got several stomachs. Later on in the day, it will ruminate. It will burp up a ball of, uh, not, <laughs> not hairball, burp up a ball of, uh, of grass, and it will chew that and put it into the second stomach. And it'll do that with more cuds until the first stomach is empty. Then it'll start that process with the second stomach until it is so thoroughly masticated it's able to assimilate it into its system. And that's what, that's what meditation is like. It needs to be going through and through our mind. Now, applied to this issue of lust, here's what you would do with the Scripture. If um, a sexually seductive image comes into your mind or some kind of... Um, a thing that deals with lust you do not want to be thinking about, <clears throat> first of all, don't just try to get rid of it without replacing it with something. That's the mistake I made when I was a teenager. It just drove me crazy. How do I get rid of these thoughts out of my head? And uh, your mind cannot operate in a vacuum. You throw it out. If it's not replaced with something, it's going to be sucking that right back in. Secondly, <clears throat> you must not think that you can resist Satan's uh, temptations in your own strength and in your own authority. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, every time Satan tempted him, what did he do? Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, and then he would quote the Scripture because the Scripture has an authority and a power over Satan. It's like a sword that makes the enemy uh, flee. And so in resisting these thoughts of relational or pictorial voyeurism, either one, Say something like this, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, or the Lord rebuke you, flesh. I am not going to think about that because God's word says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is anything, any virtue, anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And I see several of you guys have memorized that amongst other scriptures. The things which you have heard and received learned and, heard and received and heard and seen in me. These do, and the God of peace will be with you. 
those kind of scriptures, just over the next several minutes, have those going through your mind. And so you're not responding with a vacuum or human authority or trying to beat something with nothing, okay? You're, you're, you're using the authority of God's Word. Now, don't meditate on passages that describe the sin, okay? Meditate on passages that give the opposite, that deal with purity or deal with fellowship with God or the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Um, and... Um, uh, have those, doesn't matter if you're tempted a hundred times, a hundred times respond with that until those scriptures are wearing your old thought patterns down and you're beginning to think God's thoughts after, after him. I don't think there is a more powerful tool in the arsenal that we have than meditation upon the scriptures in terms of clearing our minds completely, completely of wicked thoughts. Even in your dream life, it can completely uh, restore your mind. Now, obviously, you need to flee. You need to, you know... Uh, uh, not listen to the advice of the world, etc. But l let's just move on right now. <clears throat> First of all, there's lust aroused. Second, there's lust frustrated. Built right into life are God's frustrations of sin. He makes sure sin is not worth uh, living, that it will let people down. And obviously, his desire toward Vashti has been frustrated by his emotions, his angry outbursts. That was what, in part, lost him... Uh, his queen. How many good relationships are broken up by anger that is unbridled? Uh, if you have a, tr a trouble with anger, get help. Get help. Uh, anger many times is a reflection of a self-driven life and it can lead to lust. Lust is a self-driven life, but the two many times can go hand in hand. Get help for your, for your anger. His lusts were also frustrated by his dwelling on what was not available. He remembered, but memories cannot satisfy to just spurs things on. And that is why pornography is never, ever, ever an aid in marriage. It is not. It destroys it. It sets up false criteria for love, false expectations, envy, dissatisfaction, constant desire for more. In fact, constant desire for weirder uh, experiences that people, uh, that, that, that they desire. But worst of all, it gives memories that are very, very difficult to get rid of. And so get rid of all forms of, of uh, porn, whether it's appealing to the women's weak side of life, which is voyeurism of uh, relationships and uh, feelings, or um, uh, voyeurism of pictures. Either one is just as pernicious. Another thing that lust was frustrated by was people. People just didn't cooperate. Uh, Vashti didn't cooperate. Uh, she couldn't control her. You cannot command respect. Uh, respect is one. It's not something that can be commanded. And he had lots of women, but he did not have a friend that he could relate to. You can tell he was a lonely man who was continually searching for something more. In fact, he was so insulated from life, almost nobody could approach him because of fear of being killed. A uh, very lonely person. But you will find that porn addicts and you will find that uh, fornicators are extremely lonely people. doesn't matter how many people that they relate with, it seems that they become lonelier and emptier. His lust was frustrated by the stupidity of his actions. That phrase, what had been decreed against her, it, it probably grated on him. His previous actions have completely cut off his options now, and that frequently happens in life. Yes, we open up new doors, but we've cut off uh, the op uh, opportunities of the past. Now, in this case, lust finds approval in others, and there are always going to be people who will try to market to the lusts of men and of women. 
Uh, these servants, they knew their king. They knew exactly where his weaknesses were. If they want to advance in life, they're going to try to please him. And so that's what they do in verses 2 through 4. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel, and to the women's quarters, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women. And let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. So here are the plans to satisfy his desires and his loneliness. And yet anybody who's gone down that road knows it doesn't satisfy loneliness at all. It just leaves people emptier. And I think, in a sense, the porn craze of our century is really no different than what he was doing in that beauty contest of, uh, of looking for one uh, woman after another. It's a search to fill the loneliness, the emptiness, the longing for love and affirmation. And yet Satan is a liar. He can never deliver, and he never does deliver. Verse 4 says, This thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now, he's deluded into thinking that depersonalized sexuality can fulfill his loneliness, and over time, I believe, God prepares this king to want more than sex. Um, uh, ancient authors tell us that Darius truly loved his second, his second queen, enough to give her tremendous liberties, to allow her to manage her own home. He, he cut off some of the restrictions that he had imposed on people and approaching and whatnot to enable probably her uh, to be able to approach him when, uh, when um, she needed they said that he honored her and respected her. He built a uh, big uh, pure gold statue to her. He thought very, very highly of her. And he saw in her something. She was cut of a different fabric than the others. In fact, some people think Darius actually became a Christian. Um, I'm skeptical, but you look in Ezra, there are some hints that maybe that could have happened. Uh, but uh, anyway, back to the text. He wants to elevate a woman to queen. He no doubt thinks he's honoring these women. You know, such is the, 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 the deceitfulness of, uh, of this depravity. It's deception. Porn deceives people into thinking that women want to be treated as objects, that they want perversion. Verse 4 says he was pleased, but think of the poor women who didn't have a husband. You know, they see, they see him once, and they don't have a husband. You know, he is not there as a servant leader in, in their lives. Lust depersonalizes. All he's gathering is bodies. He didn't even know who they were. All he knows is that they are virgins. And that is the only way that some people can think of women as a function. We ought not to treat women that way. They must be treated as people. And even in our marriages, in our marriages, we need to elevate them, honor them, cherish them, nurture them, befriend them, be kind to them. You know, in the Song of Solomon, uh, she was able to say, this is my friend to her husband because of the way he treated her. You know, to be a friend, you've got to spend time. You've got to nurture. You've got to have conversation. Sexuality has to be a part of it. Obviously, that's part of the Song of Solomon, but it cannot be alone. Now, such were the plans of man. It's kind of a, a seamy thing, a picture that is pl placed there, and the question is, can God possibly be a part of that? You wouldn't think he could. He neither sins nor is he tempted by sin. Nor does he tempt other people to sin. Scripture is clear on that. He hates all workers of iniquity. So why is God present when sin is present? I think we have to say God has to be present everywhere, even to his anger, 
to his sorrow, to his grief. He has to be present everywhere. He governs iniquity. He who sows the wind, the scripture says, will reap the whirlwind, right? God is guaranteed. You reap what you sow. David sowed adultery. He reaped sexual problems in his kids. He sowed murder. He reaped murderous tendencies in his children. I want you to listen to what God says to David, and you tell me if providence is even in sin. He tells David, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. That's Second Samuel chapter 12. Okay, God controls by guaranteeing there will be a harvest. The power of, you know, the illustration I gave uh, some time back, when you've got a book, uh, that book, because of gravity of its own nature, is going to fall to the ground. What keeps it from the ground is uh, the, the power of my hand restraining it. And in the same way, God gives his restraining grace to all people. He keeps them from sinning worse than they could. And if people reject that over time, Romans 1 says he gives them up to vile passions. And he's talking about homosexuality. He gives them up. He says if his restraining grace is removed, they of their own accord will fall. God doesn't have to slam them down. He doesn't have to force them. He never causes people to sin in that sense, right? And yet God controls it by restraining at times or allowing them to go their natural deserts. They don't deserve that grace. When he withdraws it, uh, there is nothing wrong that he does. And so don't think that God's providence is dead in the matter of American eroticism. It is not. The laws of harvest continue to function. They continue to overrule. And um, even in the midst of pain, we need to be able to see God present. And uh, it ought to put the fear of God into Christians who are fooling around with sin. Because God is present. He sees and he will cause those laws of harvest to bear fruit. Well, God is going to bring something marvelous out of this seamy situation. And he starts way back before Mordecai was even born. See, unlike King Ahasuerus, God does not react. Now, it may sometimes seem as if God does not have a plan, as if uh, he's constantly reacting to sin and disaster and problems that come in the way. But uh, God is not that way. There's a, a new heresy out called the openness of God theology that says that, that uh, uh, God does not know the future, so sometimes he is blindsided by things he was not aware of. He is constantly developing, growing in knowledge. He's reacting, and sometimes he is frustrated. And that's why there are things in life that are meaningless. And I want to affirm to you there is nothing meaningless in life. In fact, I want to I start with an illustration. As a, the illustration is of the <clears throat> tapestries that are hanging over in Nebraska Furniture Mart. I don't know if any of you guys have looked at those tapestries. They're like huge carpets. And those tapestries look beautiful on the top side, and they look very ugly on the bottom side. In fact, the threads are all mismatched and whatnot on the bottom. It does not look like there's any meaning or purpose to those uh, to those threads. And I think many times when we are looking at history, we are looking at the underside of history that seems as if God is not present. It's meaningless. These are arbitrary threads. There is nothing there that can give me any comfort. But you see, the top side of history shows that every thread is being woven in God's beautiful tapestry. God is weaving for eternity. And he wants us to be looking as people seated from the 
uh, in the throne of Christ in the heavenlies. Now, we saw last week <clears throat> that God starts his plans in Mordecai's life way back. Look at verse 5. In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Uh, Mordecai probably wished he had never come back to Persia. Here his daughter has been forcibly taken from him by this king. Uh, he could have been a prophet in Israel. Uh, he's already been prophesying probably for at least five years. And yet God wanted him to be, and so he was. He was recalled, probably like Nehemiah, recalled uh, to the Persian court. Now, his plans go way back earlier. His ancestor Shimei is mentioned here because he comes up in 2 Samuel chapter 16. Now, Shimei was a brash young man who uh, was a descendant of King Saul of Kish. And uh, when David is fleeing from Absalom, his son, leaving Jerusalem, Shimei is out there throwing stones, throwing clods of dirt, cursing at them. You deserve what you get, you bloodthirsty man. And uh, here's what Abishai, the cousin of David, says. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to, to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please, let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? David was restrained by God from taking revenge, and if he had not been, there would be no Mordecai, and there would be no Esther to save an entire uh, uh, nation of Jews spread out across the, the empire. Kish and his descendants uh, is another factor that God has to weave into that tapestry. How did he keep his descendants alive? <clears throat> well, there's a number of different ways, but part of it was... He made the hearts of David and Jonathan be so knit together as bosom friends that David swore to Jonathan that he would never cut off any of his descendants. You see, Kish, Shimei, Jair, all of the people in between, God's hand has to be into their lives if any of this story is going to transpire. And one of the things I want to encourage you to believe is that God is in your ancestors' lives, that He is in the lives... Uh, your life now for the future generations. You know, I look back over my uh, parents' uh, past generations and uh, it really has been encouraging to me to see how God has providentially spared them. Um, going many generations back, all kinds of uh, interesting things that the Lord did. For example, one time my, my mother was in a, uh, an airport in De Detroit, and they were waiting and waiting, and finally they made everybody get off. And they were de-icing the wings, and they said there's going to be a long delay. So she decides, I'm going to just take the train. She trades in her ticket, goes running out, and as she's running out, they say, we changed our minds, uh, everybody get back on, we're going to fly. And she's probably kicking herself, thinking, ah, I could have gotten there a whole lot earlier, but it's too late now. So she goes on the train. Well, at that precise time, uh, God impressed upon my dad's heart that my mom was in serious danger and he was earnestly praying to the Lord that the Lord would remove her from that situation. Turns out the plane crashed, everybody on board uh, died. Now I've got a heritage of stories going back generations of the Lord's dealings in the lives of, of our ancestors, the Lord's dealings in our life. You need to have a confidence that God was dealing in the lives of your ancestors. He's been dealing in your childhood, no matter how bad your childhood was. That you children, you need to be praying for your future spouses. 
You know, my, my dad, ever since he was a little kid, was praying for his spouse. And uh, uh, we need to be thinking, Lord, I want the things in my life to be affecting in a positive way the lives of my descendants. But I want you to realize there is not a thread in your life that is not being woven by God to the glory of God and for your personal good. Now, frequently, my relatives, when they were looking at those things, they didn't see that. All they saw was inconvenience, misery, pain. You know, my dad's shoulder, my grandpa's shoulder going out. Very painful thing, and everybody was discouraged, wondering how come God is not healing him. He got healed at just the right time. They were looking at the underside of the tapestry of history, and they're saying, it's nuts, it's crazy. And God wants us to look at the underside and say, it looks crazy, but I know it's not. I know God is in it all, and he, there, is no needless, there are no needless threats. Let me hurry on. We don't have time to meditate on everything. But uh, God's plans included the captivity of verse 6. God had timed the captivity, and Nebuchadnezzar had put Jeconiah on the throne. But you know what? If Jeconiah had not been such a jerk in his relationship to Nebuchadnezzar, he never would have been uh, taken into captivity, which would have meant Mordecai would not have been taken into captivity, which meant he would have been destroyed in Israel probably. And so God has to orchestrate that. This is the second captivity, but there was a third, a fourth, a fifth captivity under Nebuchadnezzar, and each one was timed perfectly to meet God's needs for various individuals who were going to be going into the empire. Verse 7 mentions the death of her father, and verse 15 mentions his name is Abihail. You know, the death of parents is an incredibly traumatic experience for young people. It is so painful, and I have seen young people who have become bitter over it, and they have wondered, where are you, God? You know, you're not absent. You're not present in my life. You've been totally absent. And it's brought great tears, and it's brought frustration to them. But again, we need to realize God was there, and they just needed the eyes to see that God was there, and He was good. You know, the Scriptures say that uh, you cannot die before it's God's time for you to die. The time, the hour of your death is destined by God. You cannot change it. And God has a perfect... In fact, it's a precious thing to Him. It should be precious to us. It's our home going, right? And uh, we need to take the perspective, Lord, I really do miss my parents. But you know, I know they're happy, and I'm happy if they're happy. And uh, I, I take your perspective, Lord, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints, and I look forward even more now. Lord, that's the, the absence of my parents is making me long for heaven more. That's the attitude I think that we need to have. Now, there could have been other families to raise Esther. God chose Mordecai. Why did He choose Mordecai? Because He knew Mordecai was going to be uh, called back into Persia, and He wants Esther in Persia. He wants her in Shushan uh, capital. Her beauty at times may have seemed like a curse to her. You know, there are many women who think their beauty is a curse. Why, Lord, did that king have to notice me? You know, it, it, it's just it's a troubling thing to, to them. And yet God, uh, too, had that as a part of his plan. Amos 3, verse 6, If there was calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? You know, when you read through this story, the first time you think, oh, Darius has captured her in his dragnet. The second time through, you know the end of the story. You realize, no, this is God who has captured her in his dragnet. And um, as Joseph told his brothers, this doesn't minimize in any way the sinfulness of it, okay? But as Joseph told his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me, 
but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You know, he was able to avoid bitterness and feelings of revenge and anger. And he was even actually able to minister to them and speak kindly because he trusted implicitly in God's providence. That God's providence could even control what they had done in their sinfulness. He didn't let them off the hook, but at the same time, he was, not, he was able to avoid bitterness and revenge as a result. Now, God positioned Haggai into this court to look out for Esther in uh, those Near Eastern harems. There was intrigue, there was uh, revenge, there was turf protection. Sometimes these women were very cruel to each other. We've got historical records of their cruelty. And uh, she would have been at the bottom of the pecking order if it hadn't been for Haggai. And so in verse 8, it ends with her being in his care. Verse 9 says, Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained favor. So he readily gave her uh, gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance, and that's a special food allowance, then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. So God's looking out for her, even in this pagan court. And uh, uh, even though God seems ab absent, we see from hindsight he absolutely is not. Verse 10 says, Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And I mentioned three different interpretations of that uh, last week. She might have been tempted to reveal her royal ancestry in order to get better treatment, keep it from getting picked on. You know, maybe when people pick on her saying, hey, you can't treat me like that. I'm, I'm the daughter of a, of a king. And Mordecai wisely said, no, don't reveal your people or your, uh, your family. Uh, he knew Haman was around. He knew the kind of... Uh, hatred. See, her great-great-great-great-granddaddy had put to death almost all of Haman's great-great-great-great ancestors, and uh, there would have been trouble if he had found out she was a descendant of, um, of uh, Saul. And yet, despite the fact that she can't reveal her royal background, she is treated royally. She's given the best. And again, it shows God elevating her, giving her favor. Now, as I said, God doesn't always reveal his will to us. Mordecai was a prophet. Uh, the Lord had revealed much to him. And yet there was much that was just as much a mystery to him as it was to other people. Look at verse 11. Every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. He didn't know what was going on. But you know what? He did everything in his power to find out. And you parents, you need to inquire. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty, they are knit together. That's the way God works providence uh, in, in this world. And so we need to be doing all that is in our power to try to uh, make things happen. Okay, in verses 13 through 14, we're not told if the women looked forward to this encounter with the king or if they dreaded it. Uh, we're just told about the king's likes and dislikes. We're not told if uh, Esther had pure motives or impure. She may have had either. Uh, we're not told why she didn't take anything with her. The others took jewelry and anything they wanted with. She just didn't take anything. And there's different interpretations. Some people say that she maybe didn't care for this position. Uh, others say, no, she was just trusting his judgment. But whatever the case, whether there was sin or there was not, uh, we, we, we know that God provided. Verse 17 uh, says that the king loved Esther more than all the other women. 
and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, he had engaged in all kinds of sins, polygamy, using women instead of pleasing them, um, the isolation of women, lack of servant leadership, anger, self-centeredness, lust. And yet in all of that, God was irresistibly moving Esther into the position of being a queen because God needed her for that position. And... Um, he limited some of the negative things. Verse 18, Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all of his officials and servants. He proclaimed a holiday in the provinces, gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. In God's providence, there was a good side to Darius. Okay? He could be generous, and uh, he could be uh, kind. And it wouldn't be surprising at all to me if one of the reasons why uh, he opens up some is he remembered what he had done to Vashti, and he thought, man... Do I really want to lose another queen? Um, uh, God may have used his indiscretion previously to keep him from being as much of a tyrant as uh, he could have been. But I think this chapter fills out Ephesians 1, verse 11, even on the seamy side of life, that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you believe that? This chapter is a call to believe that God is just as powerfully and personally present in silent providence as he is in loud miracles. He calls us to believe that when we're looking at the underside of the tapestry of history just as much as when we get peaks and glimpses at the upper side of that tapestry. He calls us to believe it even when we don't hear God's voice just as much as when we do hear his voice. God's providence, I think, is a precious doctrine we need to hold on to. And once you're gripped by that doctrine, it'll take you through sailing. In fact, this doctrine of God's sovereignty over all was the most stabilizing influence in my life uh, uh, once I adopted that. And so I challenge you, trust in the providence of God over all. Amen.